Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Julian Rees, who is Professor of Philosophy at Durham University. His new book, Causation, Evidence, and Inference, is just out from Routledge. What do we mean when we claim that something is a cause of something else, that smoking causes cancer, that the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand caused World War I, that the eight ball caused the other billiard ball to go into the side pocket? In his new book, Reese defends an inferentialist account in which causal claims are inferred from evidence for a hypothesis and are the basis of inferences to other consequences. Rice argues that causal claims depend on contextual factors such as background knowledge and the purpose for making the claim, and that such such claims are pluralistic due to the variety of kinds of evidence from which they can be inferred, among other factors. Focusing on causal claims in the biomedical and social sciences, he provides a critical overview of prominent theories of causation and evidence and argues that his view can overcome many of the problems that have been raised for these alternative views. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Julian Reese. Are you there? Hello, I am. Uh, welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Thank you very much. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here, and uh, I'm very honored and pleased to be interviewed about my book. Um, well, I'm very happy to be talking about it because the topic of causation is, I mean, as, as you go through in the book, it's historically very important, but obviously it's very important for for how we live our lives. Um, and you give a very interesting uh, view, uh, an inferentialist account, as you say, it of, of the meaning of causal claims. So there's a lot of different working parts here uh, involving the evidence base from which we infer, uh, we're entitled to infer causal claims, and then also uh, what we infer too in terms of counterfactual dependencies, um, explanations, and and so forth. So it's a very rich account uh, that builds on a lot of uh, the prior work that's been done about causation, uh, at least since Hume, you know, probably most famously since Hume. Uh, can you say a bit about how you got to this topic or how you got to philosophy um, and then how you came to write this particular book? Absolutely. Uh, um, so I'm actually an economist by training and uh, so I have a first degree in economics and finance from Switzerland, from the University of St. Gallen. And uh, while I did my studies in economics, I did not only have some sort of philosophical, epistemological questions about economics, I also discovered the philosophy of Karl Popper and the philosophy of science hmm. of Karl Popper in particular. And uh, so I decided near the end of my degree that uh, it would be a good idea to do a PhD in, in philosophy of science and try to answer those epistemological questions I had about economics. And so a natural step then was to go to London, to the London School of Economics and do that. And luckily I was, I was accepted and then uh, did my PhD in philosophy of economics um, with uh, Mary Morgan and Nancy Cartwright as my supervisors. And uh, essentially, I've stuck with it ever since. Um, I did not work on causation back then, but rather on concept formation, abstraction, measurement, these kinds of things in, in economics. So I was interested in how these very abstract concepts um, you find in economics, such as, say, inflation or uh, homo economicus and, and those kinds of things, mm-hmm. how they relate to the real world and um, so that naturally led me into looking at, you know, issues of abstraction measurement and so on. Um, and it was only um, my first job, really, that brought me to um, causation, which was also um, at the LSE, a postdoc, um, which um, was led by, again, Nancy Cartwright, but also John Worrell and Elliot Sober mm-hmm. um, on causation in physics, economics, and biology. 
And um, so as a postdoc on that project, I had to learn a lot about uh, causation. And in a sense, this book is still an outcome of that. And surely my thinking about causation has um, been influenced very much by all three philosophers. And you can see many examples, actually, um, of, you know, sort of references to them in the book and, um, you know, ways in which uh, they have influenced my thinking. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the interesting things uh, about your approaches is the fact that you're focusing on, as you put, the biomedical sciences and the social sciences. So your your economics background is, is obviously foremost in, in your thinking. Um, and this is actually not all that typical of discussions of causation, as I'm sure you discovered. I mean, That's Hume, surely true. Yeah. Right? Hume began with, you know, the, the sort of the standard case. And even in philosophical discussion, it's often, you know, one billiard ball hitting another billiard ball or yeah. some other very simple physical uh, sequence of events. Um, and this uh, this approach to causation – uh, to the nature of causes uh, is often with very simple sorts of physical causes in mind, uh, the sort of direct contact. Um, so coming at it from the perspective that you do from the social sciences and from economics, you're already kind of widening the scope to cases where you're not going to simply observe some one thing hitting another thing. Uh, but it's going to be a, right. a lot different. Um, yeah. Can can you say a bit about um, how your perspective as as a you know trained economist, but also just looking at it, you know, in terms of uh, the causal claims that we make in ordinary life or in history? You know, the uh, assassination of Archduke Ferdinand caused World War One. You know, smoking causes lung cancer. I mean, none of these things have uh, the immediate sorts of characteristics that billiard ball one has when it hits billiard ball two. Could you could you say a bit about how your background has informed your approach to the whole question of of causation? Yeah, surely I'm interested mainly in causal relations as they obtain in complex situations. And by complex, I mean that many causal factors somehow have to conspire to bring about an, um, an event or an effect. Um, and so um, this makes a huge difference to the methods with which we investigate causal relations. So, um, for example, in physics, um, what is often possible is that we can perfectly control some phenomenon, we can completely shield one causal line off from disturbing factors. Um, just think of sort of um, Galileo's famous um, falling bodies, uh, falling balls. So um, what we can in the laboratory create a situation where there's really just one factor, just gravity, that um, affects the outcome. Whereas this is entirely impossible in the social sciences and in the biomedical sciences that I'm um, mainly interested in. There's also another difference, um, two more differences actually, but one other difference is that um, the, um, the, is the role of theory. So neither in the social sciences nor in the biomedical sciences um, do we have a strong theory that is widely accepted, that helps us a lot in causal inference. So in physics, again, we know, for example, that you know, if we're interested in motion, that only forces can produce motion. And we also have a good idea of what the different forces are and what the sources of these forces may be. So we have a very good idea of practically how to shield an apparatus. And, you know, and even if not, um, if we can't shield it, we, you know, often have theories that help us to actually calculate the contribution that a causal factor can make. None of this is true um, in, in any of the social sciences or in the biomedical sciences. That doesn't mean that we don't have theory, but very often either theory means 
you know, a sort of low-level causal generalization um, or something which is more like a framework for thinking. So I'm thinking of economic theory, um, sort of neoclassical economic theory is so malleable. Um, it doesn't really make substantive assertions about the world. And so, again, there's a theory, but it's not, you know, one that allows us to make any strong predictions, um, you know, without further empirical input. And um, the third difference, actually, you already mentioned, is the lack of observation. So, of course, observation plays a role, but by and large, the kinds of things that we're interested in are not observable. So, you know, of course, certain kinds of economic properties are observable, like prices, but when we talk about something that interests us from a you know, sort of regulatory perspective or anything like that, a policy perspective, we're interested in the unemployment rate, the inflation rate, properties like that, which, of course, cannot be observed. And so causal relations, even though they might in some cases be observable, um, surely cannot be um, in, in these sciences. And so, again, I want to give an account of um, causation that doesn't rely on um, our ability to observe directly causal relations, and that fits um, with the um, requirements of the complex sciences such as the social sciences and the biomedical sciences. Okay, so um, when you begin the uh, the book, your discussion, uh, canvassing a lot of the the main both Humean and anti-Humean uh, accounts of causation, uh, the regularity account, obviously from Hume, uh, Lewis's counterfactual dependence account, uh, uh, Mackey's Inus conditions, which is sort of a, a an outgrowth of the human view, um, transfer accounts, you know, transfer of information or of some sort of force. Uh, could you say a bit about these, how these accounts uh, succeed, or where they where they pointed out something important that you would want to take on board, and where they fail that you feel that your account can account for things that that they don't? Yeah, um, so what I do in the first chapter is that I review all the or many of the existing families of accounts of causation um, and show that each one of them brings out something really important and each one of them was a useful theory to have because it teaches us something very important about the nature of causation but ultimately all of these theories fail essentially because there are counterexamples. Um, and so in each case, um, what I say is, well, look, here's an account that taught us X, Y, Z, which is really an important thing to learn about causation. But then there are these counterexamples. Um, so just to um, give a, a, a number of examples, think of um, regularity accounts of causation. So you already mentioned Mackey's Inus conditions account. So Inus conditions, um, as um, you know, as you, um, I'm sure know, are insufficient but non-redundant parts of unnecessary but sufficient conditions. And so that is best illustrated um, with a simple example of the striking of the match. Mm-hmm. So um, a um, the striking of the match on its own does nothing. You need other factors to be present in order for the match to light. So, for example, you need um, oxygen in the air. You need, um, you know, to strike it with a particular force. The um, uh, match has to be dry, and so on and so forth. And so, I think um, uh, there's 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 two things that um, the account teaches us. One is that causal factors by and large, and again, in the sciences that I'm interested in, do not operate on their own, but only in the context of other factors. And what they do might depend on what other factors are present. But then also, um, and this is sort of the the other part of the complex um, uh, Inus um, view of of causation, there are always, or almost always, alternative ways of bringing about um, an effect. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but there are counterexamples. Um, and so it is relatively easy to show that um, Inus conditions cannot distinguish between relations of direct causation and um, common cause structures where there's one factor that um, brings about two effects 
And then one can show that um, one effect is a minus condition for the other effect. Um, and um, this is true of all the accounts of causation um, that I know of. And I think it's, it's um, easy to illustrate or, or best perhaps illustrated if you contrast the original Hume with um, a more, more modern um, causal powers view of causation because they, anyway, they, they're often sort of pitched against each other. So Hume held that um, causation essentially consists in regularity, temporal priority of the cause to the effect, and contiguity, by which he meant essentially spatio-temporal closeness. So the cause must be close to the um, uh, to the effect. But there are counterexamples um, to to all of the three. So indeterministic causes are not regularly followed um, by the effect. So not all smokers contract lung cancer, um, for example. Um, you can have um, causal relations between very distant events. So if you're a Freudian, then you think that, you know, all sorts of behavioral, um, behavioral patterns are actually caused in your childhood, which may be, you know, 20, 30, 40 years away um, and so on. And then um, the temporal priority of the cause is not given in, in cases of simultaneous causation. So, um, for instance, um, if you have two books leaning at each other in equilibrium, then um, there's, you know, there's simultaneous causation going on, um, and you can't say that the cause is in any way prior to the effect. Or there's an example due to Kant, actually, um, where, you know, the placing of um, a ball, a heavy ball, in a cushion makes a hollow. But again, you know, the placing of the ball... Um, is simultaneous um, with the with the production of the um, of the hollow. Mm-hmm. Now, um, these kinds of counterexamples are used by causal power theorists um, to argue, you know, for for in favor of against Hume and for causal powers. But really, and so they can explain um, all these cases. However, um, they're also subject to problems. Um, so, for example, you need there is absence causation. Um, so um, I'm a bread maker. Um, so recently I discovered, um, you know, it's fun to make bread. And um, as you might know, certain breads need a starter dough. And, you know, once you have the starter, you actually need to feed it to keep it alive. And then I was traveling last week and, you know, asked my neighbor to um, feed my dough. He <laughs> forgot it. And, you know, my, my, my starter died. Oh. So his inaction, his not feeding my starter dough, caused it to die. Um, you can say he killed it. Um, but of course, there is no causal power in an absence right. that, you know, that has any properties that can bring about the death, right? I mean, there's just nothing there um, where the causal powers can inhere. And so again, um, there, there are tons of advantages of, of causal power theories. Um, for instance, there are pluralistic theories and I do believe that there are many different kinds of causal relations. So again, they get something right, but they're not universally applicable because there are causal relations and causal relations that are really important. For example, in the social and biomedical sciences, um, where absences um, stand in causal relations and causal power theories cannot explain that. Um, And so each of these accounts, again, you know, says something that is right, but also get certain cases wrong. And my account very much is developed as a response to um, these good things, but also these bad things about the existing theories. Very good. Um, so uh, one, one of the distinctions you draw in the beginning uh, pretty carefully is to say, I, you know, what I'm doing, what, what you're doing is, is giving an account of the meaning of causal claims. And you, you distinguish that from giving an account of the meaning of cause, you know, the word cause. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain why you make that distinction and why it's important to make it? Um, simply because I do not think that the word cause has a meaning that it carries over from um, claim to claim. And actually the cause of claim as such also doesn't have a meaning that, um, or it has a meaning that, that may be context dependent. So simply a sentence such as one billiard ball caused another one to move or smoking causes lung cancer have 
different have different meanings and so even though the word is the same you have to look at the claim and in fact not just the claim but the claim in a context mm -hmm. to get the meaning um of um the causal claim right and um so you cannot just analyze the word cause you have to provide an account of a causal claim in a context Okay, that's that's helpful because one of the things you say also is is that you your account is pluralistic, mm -hmm. and I take it that this this is one of the ways in which the pluralism is uh, comes out is is that cause itself that that term really has a number of different meanings depending as you mentioned on the the type of claim being made the context in which that claim is being made and and so forth is that correct that is right yeah okay. Um, so, your account, I mean, to, to briefly describe it, uh, says that the meanings of causal claims are, 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 uh, given by, uh, various sorts of inferences. Um, uh, you in, one infers, one, one has an uncertain, when one makes a causal claim, one is entitled to infer from certain kinds of evidence, and, and you're also clear here that the, different that there's pluralism about the kinds of evidence from which we can infer mm -hmm. to a causal claim and also in the other direction uh, we can infer from a causal claim mm -hmm. to certain uh, depend counterfactual dependencies um, uh, explanatory exactly. uh, predictive claims claims about effective strategies right attributing blame and praise actually yeah yeah all the all the stuff that we we want to get out of a causal claim. Mm. Um, so can you, can you give us an overview of, of, of your account in a, in a bit more detail than what I just gave right now? Certainly. Um, I think sort of to contrast it um, with most existing accounts. Um, so most existing accounts see um, or sort of state the meaning of a causal claim in that these actually the word cause or a causal claim picks out some feature of the world. So in Hume, it's a regularity between events. Um, in uh, Supis, it's probability raising. In David Lewis, it's a metaphysical account that refers not just to this world, but you know to counterfactual relations. But again, it's um, you know it's a it's a it's an objective feature. Um, of, of, well, anyway, this world and, 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 and possible worlds. Causal power accounts, even though they're non-Humean, um, do the same. Um, they pick out a particular feature, and in this case, it's a causal power. My view of causation is entirely different. Um, it's, um, causal claims do not pick out a, um, a feature of the world, but rather an inferential practice, um, reasoning practice. And so if you want to determine the meaning of a causal claim and, you know, the meaning of a causal claim in a context, what you have to do is um, you have to look at these inferential relations. And um, in the simplest way to think about it is that causal claims are all established. So we know that smoking causal, causes lung cancer. For example, um, because you know there's there's kinds of evidence, there are epidemiological studies, perhaps animal experiments, um, and so on and so forth, and then we use this evidence to infer the causal claim. But as you mentioned, um, by and large, we do not want. It's not interesting actually to learn a causal claim as such. It doesn't. You know, it's, 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 it's not, you know, it's, it's not useful. What we want from a causal claim is to learn other kinds of claims, mm -hmm. claims about effective strategies. So it's a good idea if you want to avoid lung cancer to, um, to stop smoking. Um, if you want to lose weight, it's a good idea to, to, to start jogging, um, or what have you. Um, so claims about effective strategies. Attributing blame and praise, asbestos causes, also causes lung cancer. So perhaps um, some worker worked um, in a company that used asbestos in, in, in buildings. And so um, he or um, uh, relatives um, would like to get some compensation for his lung cancer. And mm -hmm. so you want to blame um, the lung cancer on the um, on the firm and so on and so forth. So there is what I call a cash value of a causal claim. And in fact, the two 
the evidential base or inferential base for the causal claim and the um, what I call the inferential target, so the cash value of the causal claim, are tightly related because if I establish a causal claim in order to infer an explanatory claim, I have to learn something different, a different kind of causal claim, substantiated by a different kind of evidence than if I want to learn a claim about an effective strategy, for example. And so, um, but the, the main view is that, or the main point of this view is that, well, if you have the word cause, that doesn't pick out a feature of the world, but rather it picks out a certain inferential practice, social practice having to do with evidential reasoning and reasoning about explanations, predictions, attributing blames and so forth. Does that help? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and you also, uh, you, you characterize your view as a, a version of a hypothetical deductive account, uh, mm-hmm. which you note, I think at one point as a dead horse has been a dead horse for 30 years or something. Mm-hmm. But you, you say, you say that, uh, it was actually not, um, properly kind of interpreted. Um, so can you can you explain the relationship between your view and and hypothetical deductivism properly interpreted? Certainly. Um, so now, because this view of causation is an inferentialist one, and we understand um, the causal claim by understanding inferential relations, of course, you have to go to the um, bit about evidential reasoning um, in, in order to understand that. And so I started um, when I was thinking about um, this inferentialist view of causation um, to to think about, well, how does evidential reasoning um, proceed? Now, there are various accounts on offer, of course. Um, Bayesianism is one. Um, Peter Ackenstein has developed another. The hypothetical deductive um, theory is, is yet another. But there are all I, I, I shopped around for you know for a good account of evidence, um, but I you know they, they they just didn't do the work that I needed it to do. Mm-hmm. Um, then I developed my own account, and I found actually that it's fairly similar to um, hypothetical deductivism, but in a liberalized way. Um, so I think what um, people the, the the logical empiricists and their critics actually got wrong was the focusing on sort of strict logical relationships. And I don't think evidential reasoning works like that at all, um, but it's um, a much looser sort of inductivist kind of reasoning, um, though without the probabilities. So in a sense, it's closer to Bayesianism, but it doesn't have probabilities. And so just to, um, you know, just to, just to explain it a bit better, um, so the hypothetical deductive account thinks that the implications, the logical implications of a hypothesis um, are the evidence for, for um, the hypothesis. But I don't believe that any interesting scientific hypothesis entails anything about the observations. So, for example, a causal claim um, doesn't entail that two variables, so say, you know, there's a causal claim X causes Y, um, but that doesn't entail that in a given given population, the two variables have to be correlated. And yet, a correlation between these two variables in a population is certainly evidence. Um, similar about um, experiments. So, um, you know, the, the hypothesis, the causal hypothesis as such, does not entail that um, an experimental result will, um, you know, an, an experiment will, will, will give a certain result, but a certain experimental result, again, can be evidence for, for the hypothesis. And so what I think is that um, hypothetical deductivism, what it got right is that, well, it starts with a hypothesis and then asks essentially what is the content. But the content is not given by its logical implications, but rather by, through background knowledge and other things, we um, know the empirical content of this hypothesis is. So by and large, causal claims, for instance, show up in the data as correlations or as necessary conditions or in forms of, you know, experiments um, in, 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 in the form of, you know, certain kinds of processes and so on. And so what I think then is that 
um, the um, what you have to look for is not the implications um, of a hypothesis, but rather you um, ask what are you um, what do you expect to um, what kinds of patterns in the data do you um, expect to find on the supposition of a hypothesis. So that's that's the first part. And now, um, so for example, with a causal claim, X causes Y, you're expected, sorry, you're, 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 you're licensed, um, you're entitled to expect, a cor- to, to find a correlation, even though the fact that, you know, two, two variables are correlated is not entailed by the causal hypothesis. Um, now, once you have that um, sort of that empirical content and you find, say, a correlation, Usually, there are tons and tons of other hypotheses that can equally account for these patterns in the data. Right. So, for example, we know from background knowledge that if you have an observational study, um, there, there can always be selection bias so that, you know, certain, um, uh, uh, you know, that, for instance, there's a correlation between taking up smoking and other causes um, of lung cancer. Um, and um, so there are tons and tons of other um, accounts, um, alternative hypotheses that can account for the, um, the correlation. And so evidential reasoning by and large then um, consists in ruling out um, these alternative accounts of what I call the direct evidence, the empirical content of um, the hypothesis. Mm-hmm. And this then is all very contextual because what... Um, the empirical content of our hypothesis is in part depends on what we know about the behavior of the entities in question. So um, the, our understanding of what causes do or can do has changed dramatically, of course, um, in the course of history. And so the empirical content of, um, of causal claims with that has changed. Um, Similarly, um, with respect to the alternatives, um, 50, 100 years ago, perhaps nobody thought of experimenters bias, publication bias, mm-hmm. you know, these kinds of things. But now we know that um, if we find a study um, that reports the uh, result of a randomized trial, we know that, well, this might actually be the um, product of, you know, a publication bias and therefore evidence, but feasible evidence. And we have to rule out this alternative account, alternative hypothesis before we actually um, draw the inference. Um, and so again, there's a, there's a liberalized view in that I don't assume that, you know, either the empirical content of hypotheses or what the alternatives are or how to rule them out is anything that is fixed. It has to do with our background knowledge. It has to do with the purpose of the inquiry, with the nature and the purpose of the inquiry, mm-hmm. but also with certain normative standards, um, with uh, methodological standards, conceptual standards, um, and also ethical standards, actually, because the purpose will tell us about the stakes um, that the inquiry has, and depending on our stakes, we might be more or less careful in our ruling out of the alternatives. And so there emerges um, a through and through inductivist view um, that is, is in, a, in a way modeled on hypothetical deductivism, but thoroughly inductivist and contextualist. Okay. So um, in the latter parts of the book, you, uh, you focus on singular causation, right, individual uh-huh. causal claims, and also, of course, the role of, of causal laws. So... Uh, Going to the first of those two two aspects of causation, um, could you say something about your your analysis of causal claims and and in particular the role of counterfactuals? Because I mean that that's foremost, you know, probably after Hume, I think, as Lewis's account of counterfactuals and and its role in 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 uh, explaining causation has been extremely influential. Mm-hmm. Um, and on your view, uh, the uh, what we the counterfactual dependencies in a sense are dependent on the the causal claims. I mean, maybe I've I've said that in a bit uh, bit roughly, but uh, 
clearly, on your view, it's it's not that causal claims are are given by counterfactual dependencies, but rather, right. in a sense, the other way around. Um, can you so can you say something about how your your framework illuminates um, uh, singular causal claims, um, and then the relation between those claims and counterfactual dependence? Absolutely. Um, so in the book, I do um, three things with counterfactual accounts. Um, first, um, I look at um, actually versions of um, the counterfactual account that play an important role in history, um, in, 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 in world history, and other social sciences that look at singular um, causal claims and aim to establish claims about singular causation. So um, you already mentioned um, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Um, did it cause World War One, which is, you know, a singular causal relation? How is that established? And one tradition in, um, in social science, uh, sociology, history, um, establishes these singular causal claims by um, a counterfactual thought experiment. So it essentially evaluates what would have happened if a certain factor were changed in history. And sort of, I look at um, the conditions under which such a counterfactual thought experiment can give valid or good evidence for a causal claim, for a causal claim about singular causation. Um, that is one um, thing that I do. Um, the second thing is that I um, take a basically Louisian um, account of causation, counterfactual account, um, and um, show that it's subject to counterexamples, as you know, all accounts of causation are. But I show that one can fix these counterexamples by essentially contextualizing the notion of causation. And so um, I show that the counterexamples can disappear when um, one appeals to norms, so to principles that tell us what happens normally or generally, but also by ethical principles that tell us what ought to happen. And so through that, I show that um, a Louisian kind of factual idea of causation is actually normative um, through and through, is infused with normativity. Mm -hmm. And then the last thing I do is um, I present an alternative theory of singular causation. Um, so now I you know, sort of leave the Louisian framework and say, well, look, um, here's my alternative. And um, that um, establishes causal claims about singular causation without counterfactuals in the evidential base. Um, and so I then show, um, again, how to solve certain counterexamples. And not surprisingly, of course, I use my inferentialist framework um, to understand these causal claims, and in particular, sort of um, contextual kinds of evidential reasoning um, about um, these claims. And um, one way um, to, 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 to show that this account improves on, um, on the Louisian account is that it doesn't have a problem with redundant causation. Why is that? Well, redundant causation is a problem for um, Lewis-style Lewis um, causation because you don't have, you have causation without counterfactual dependence. Right. So, you know, you, 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 you've probably heard of the you know, famous um, Billy and Susie cases where, you know, both are sort of vandals and, you know, like to throw rocks at vases or bottles or windows or whatever. And then, you know, depending on the version of the story, it's Susie's or Billy's that hits the um, window first. Um, and um, so, you know, say it's, it was Susie's. Um, so we have a shattering. We have a causal relation. Um, but we don't have counterfactual dependence because had Su Susie not thrown or had she thrown it elsewhere or whatever, um, Billy's throw would have broken the glass. And so there's no counterfactual dependence, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I resolved that um, within my inferentialist um, account by essentially showing that we are not entitled so, um, to infer a claim about counterfactual dependence if in the evidential base for the claim, there is a claim about backup causes. Mm -hmm. So um, we can infer from, in this case, it's really observation. So I think critical observation, observation against the backdrop of assumptions that 
you know, you're, you're not sleeping, you haven't taken drugs and so on. So it's always, it's always inferential. It's never sort of basic and direct, but you know, it's, it's basically um, observation. You see that it's Susie's throw that actually did it. Um, but in this particular case, um, what you can infer is a causal claim, but in the inferential target of this causal claim, you don't have a claim about counterfactual dependence because in the inferential base, there is a claim about um, a backup cause, which you know, which you know would have done um, the deed mm-hmm. if if it hadn't been for for Susie's throw. And this way, sort of within an inferentialist framework, you can you can resolve um, this particular counterexample. So let let me ask about a particular subtype of singular causation, which uh, involves mental causation. I mean, one of the one of the reasons, the purposes we have, as you mentioned, for making causal claims uh, is for praise and blame. It's you know extremely important, and and we. Uh, in, in legal context and personal context and, and social context quite generally is, you know, somebody did something um, and they wanted to do it, they intended to do it and so forth. Um, so how does how does mental causation fit into your framework? I mean, so those are pre- many of our most important causal claims, singular causal claims are, are of the mental causation type. Um could you say something about how your view uh, explains mental causation or how mental causation fits in? And part, part of the question is a lot of the debate about mental causation, which, you know, admittedly you don't go into, um, at least not in any depth, uh, is trying to relate mental causation to, in some sense, physical causation. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just wonder, you know, first of all, how does your view account for mental causation, but also what sorts of implications does it have for that now traditional debate about trying to account for mental causation and its relationship to physical causation? Yeah, so um, I aim to provide an account of causation in the sciences, and um, I therefore do not address purely metaphysical problems, such as the exclusion problem um, that I think you you sort of refer to. Um, So these kinds of questions are simply not addressed in the book, and um, I I could not sort of, from the top of my head, I could not give you you an intelligent answer. Um, What is important is that um, the project in the book is very naturalistic. So I think that philosophy and science are basically continuous, and also that we have to um, sort of take the language of science at face value. So it's not that scientists can't be wrong in individual cases, um, but if we were to give a revisionary account of scientific language, then we better had a very, very good, um, very strong reason for that. And so, you know, again, taking scientific language at face value, you just have to accept that mental causation is as real as any other kind of causation. By the way, also, you know, if you think of um, micro and macro causation, quite obviously, again, macro causation is just as real as as micro causation. Um, but again, mental causation just as real as as physical causation, or not. But you know, they are they are on par. Um, is the um, is the important thing. Um, and so, I don't have a problem at all with um, mental causation simply because mental entities such as beliefs and desires um, figure in successful, um, widely accepted scientific causal claims. And also, it appears that we cannot do science without them. So, for example, we cannot do game theory, um, you know, from my own discipline, economics, um, without the mental concept of preference. So if we were to give a reductive account of preference in terms of choices, you could not solve games because you have to, in order to solve a game, you have to appeal to what people desire to do, not what they do in actual choice situations or what they were to do. Um, you, you simply couldn't you couldn't do game theory with it. But game theory is a very successful um, 
framework for thinking about strategic problems in economics. And so, um, to, to that extent and to that extent, you know, we, um, these, these, these mental entities, beliefs, desires, preferences, um, play a role, um, there is, you know, play a role in, in, in causal claims. Uh, there is mental causation. Okay. Um, yeah, you mentioned the the idea that uh, of reduction, um, and that that obviously plays mm-hmm. a, an enormous role in all these disputes over mental causation, or or in fact any of the sorts of causal claims that are of most interest to you in the social sciences. Uh, you know, between you know, in history and, and in economics and so forth. Uh, there's certainly a very strong strand within the literature on causation that the only real, you know, and, and again, now we're talking the metaphysics rather than the semantics, uh, the idea that the only real causation is what's going on in some sense at the physical level and anything above that is just... Uh, causal explanatory in some sense, but mm-hmm. not really causal. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think your view kind of obviates that whole debate or uh, sidesteps it or is, is simply it's it's just wrong-headed? Well, I surely think that it's wrong-headed. <laughs> I don't make a difference between sort of real causation um, and causal explanation. I just couldn't do that, um, you know, in, 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 in the terms that, you know, that I use to think about causation. Um, but I do think that um, I can shed some light on debates that are sort of related. Um, so um, the um, what you find in social science is often a similar reductive impulse that macro phenomena, so, you know, basically social phenomena, um, relations between, say, the unemployment rate and the interest rate and the growth rate or anything like that, have to be given an account in terms of um, micro properties, by which here, not physical um, properties are meant, but properties of individual agents. Right. And, you know, there's an important tradition, of course, in social science that um, this must be so. But um, as, you know, in other um, respects, um, I have a pluralist view about that. So to give an explanation is, you know, to give a good answer um, to a why question. And what is a good answer simply depends on explanatory interests. So I think that very often a mechanistic or micro answer can provide more detail and in a sense can provide a deeper explanation. But for many purposes, in particular when the purpose, say, has to do with um, regulation um, and policy and, 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 and so on, um, mechanistic details do not play um, any role and actually shouldn't be cited. So just think of um, the most recent financial crisis. So according to one account, it was caused by um, low interest rates in the early 2000s, um, which again um, were a response to the bust of the um, dot-com bubble. And um, what is really important sort of for regulation and for, 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 for policy purposes and so on is that so we can blame um, this financial crisis on low interest rates. How they produced it uh, produced it is entirely irrelevant. Of course, you can give a very detailed, mechanistic, micro story um, saying something about how the low interest rate um, led to an inflation in um, the subprime um, mortgage market and how that then, you know, eventually burst and how that and so on. Um, But it's entirely irrelevant if the purpose actually is um, regulation policy and so on, um, where this money went, that the money that was produced by um, by the low interest rates. It could have been any asset. It could have been gold. It could have been the stock market. In fact, no, it was mortgage market, in particular the subprime mortgage market, but it doesn't matter at all. What matters is, well, it's a bad idea to keep interest rates too low for t- uh, you know, too long a time. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think it's a much better explanation to look at this macro relation in this particular case, you know, if the explanatory interest has to do with um, regulation and policy, then, um, you know, to give a detailed micro story. 
But of course, a historian might be interested in the details of this crisis in particular. And then, of course, these details matter a lot. Um, but I think sort of this, you know, sort of pluralist view about um, explanation is, 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 is sort of very consistent with, um, you know, the views about causation that I, um, uh, that I defend in the book. And so I think it illuminates a sort of analog of that debate, but not that particular metaphysical debate. Okay. Um, let's get on to causal laws. Uh, again, another, you know, very important topic in, uh, in philosophical discussions of, of causation. Um, you consider the problem of, of nonsense correlations. I think you mentioned Elliot Sober's example of, of a correlation between sea levels in Venice and bread prices in Britain uh, as, as a, a amusing uh, example of, of, of two phenomena uh, through time that are correlated and yet uh, intuitively, of course, there's, there's no causal relationship between them whatsoever. Uh, can you say, uh, explain a bit about your view of, of causal laws and how you uh, resolve the problem of, of these nonsense correlations uh, with the principle of common cause? Yeah. So um, what um, I do in that chapter that discusses the, this counterexample, so the counterexample is really a counterexample to the principle of the common cause. Mm -hmm. And the principle of the common cause holds that a correlation or a probabilistic dependence between two variables has a causal explanation. So if two variables are correlated, a and B, then either um, A causes B, B causes A, or there's a common cause. Um, and I think that is right to an extent, but it um, looks not, it doesn't look far enough. So um, what I do essentially is um, to embed this principle in a sort of wider eliminativist um, epistemology. And so the problem of this um, counter, of Sobos counterexample is that correlations can not only have causal explanations, but also other explanations, non-causal explanations. In this particular case, it's um, a property of a time series. So if you have time series, so variables that are measured in time, um, that are, that are so-called non-stationary, by which it is meant that moments um, of the time series change over time, um, and again, by which is meant either... Um, the, the mean or the variance or higher moments um, of the um, of the of the variable of the time series, then nonsense correlations can arise that do not have a causal explanation. Exactly in um, as in as in so this counterexample. However, um, it's a much broader range of um, cases that are relevant in the social sciences, essentially because almost every variable in economics is actually non-stationary. So moments of those variables change. And so you can learn very little from correlations because you cannot assume that correlations are explained by um, causal connections. And so essentially what I do is that um, I list the other kinds of explanations that, that there can be. So there, there can be, for instance, um, you know, these statistical properties that induce correlations. Um, there can also be conceptual relations. So gross domestic product is correlated with gross national product. But the reason is, of course, that one is partly defined in terms of the other. Um, or there can be logical relations, mathematical relations between these variables. And essentially then um, the um, what the chapter does is that, well, look, um, from an eliminativist point of view, what you do is, well, you observe the correlation, but then you know that there's a whole array of possible accounts or explanations for this, and you eliminate these. So you can separate the kinds of explanations into causal and non-causal, and then perhaps, you know, you might want to eliminate the non-causal ones first, so you make sure that the two variables don't have um, conceptual relations or logical relations or that the correlation is due to a statistical property of the time series. And then you're left with the original PCC, because if you've eliminated all these alternatives, then there must be a causal explanation. And then it's either of the three explanations I mentioned in the beginning. Okay. 
Um, and then, uh, again, towards the end, uh, you discuss, well, what we mentioned earlier, uh, the concept of cause as opposed to the meaning of a causal claim. Uh, and you, you discuss uh, Elizabeth Anscombe's uh, pluralist view, mm-hmm. um, which is based on, on Wittgenstein's view mm-hmm. of uh, the, the concept of a game, right? Um, could you say something about your pluralism, about the concept of cause in relation to her view? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, again, I think we learn something very important from Anscombe's account. So Anscombe thought that the term cause is an abstraction from more concrete causal verbs such as desiccate, push, humidify, what have you. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so she drew our attention to the fact that there are all these verbs that express causation, but also something else. So to kill doesn't only express a causal relation, but it expresses a particular kind of causal relation that results in the death of something, Mm. right? Or to um, desiccate anyway, you know, means to, you know, again, it expresses a causal relation, um, but also the taking out of water um, and and, and, and so on. And so um, she thinks that um, most causal relations are described not by the word cause, but actually by a more concrete um, causal verb. And so far, I entirely agree. And actually, the account that I give makes no difference whatsoever. So it's not a um, an account of the word cause at all, but rather an account of causal claims and whether the causal claim uses the word cause or humidify or push or make or what have you doesn't matter at all. And so, so far, I entirely agree with Anscombe. However, um, I do not think that for all the causal relations, you have a verb um, that expresses that causal relation. So um, if um, my neighbor, um, you know, caused my starter dough to die, then it is very difficult to express that with a very concrete causal term. Earlier I used kill, but, you know, kill doesn't say more than, you know, he caused the death of my starter dough. Um, And so I don't think that every case of a causal relation can be expressed using using such a causative. Plus, um, Anscombe actually doesn't give an account of where these terms get their meaning from. And so I think in these two um, respects, one has to improve on on her account. So again, we learned something really important, namely the bulk of causal relations in ordinary, but also in scientific language, is expressed by causal verbs, not by the word cause. Um, But um, we have to be, in a sense, even more pluralist because not every causal relation is expressed in that way. Plus, she doesn't tell us, you know, where where these um, verbs, causal verbs, um, get their get their meaning from, and um, that is what the book does. So it provides it provides an, an account of, you know, causal claims um, that can use cause, can use um, kill, humidify, what have you, um, and 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 it's entirely general, um, and it does not fall foul um, of this um, counterexample. That, um, that I mentioned earlier. So um, it is, an, in a sense, an even more pluralist view of causation than Anscombe's, um, because essentially in, in Anscombe's view, the plurality is given by the number of causal terms. But I think that these causal terms actually can change meaning from, um, from context to context. So um, transduce, for example, is a very important um, causative in molecular biology, but there are tons and tons of mechanisms that use transductions, you know, the word transduce, Mm -hmm. but they're very different mechanisms. And so depending on what the mechanism actually is and, you know, how it was established and and so on and so forth, the the causative transduce um, has a a different meaning. And so my pluralism actually um, goes a lot 
in a, in a sense a lot deeper because sort of it's not just you know pluralism about the word cause but it's also so causal relations can also be expressed by these more concrete causal verbs but then again their meaning is only given in a context and so um you know there can be many meanings to to one and the same um causal verb however um, I think there is also unity because, and, and again, um, the meaning of a causal claim is given by these inferential relations. And in fact, these inferential relations from one causal claim to another are actually fairly similar. Very, very often we find certain kinds of experiments in the evidential base. Very often we find certain kinds of observational studies, certain ways of ruling out alternatives in the evidential base. Very often we find explanatory claims, predictive claims, claims about attributing um, blame and um, and praise in the inferential target. So I think even though that sort of at a micro level, there's an enormous plurality, from a bird's point of view, there's also similarity between um, different kinds of causal claims. And that is given by a similarity, by a family resemblance. So it's also a Wittgensteinian account in, in that sense, mm-hmm. by a family resemblance between kinds of inferential relations. Uh, very good. Um, so I, I, uh, I was going to follow up with a question about the scope of your uh, account. Uh, so, but we're, we're running out of time, so let me just put it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you focus, as you, as you mentioned, on causal claims in the biomedical and social sciences. Uh, and you, you say that it's, it's fruitful in those areas. Um, but there's two other areas one might think, um, you know, how does your account affect those? One is the, you know, the physical sciences, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, how fruitful is it there? Um, mm-hmm. And then outside of science altogether, Right. Uh, mm-hmm. Is is this an account that, you know, is, is actually quite general? It's, it's not really specific to not just to particular sciences, um, but to science at all. Yeah, I will be very quick <laughs> as we're at the end of our time. But uh, so one um, I mean, there are two main differences between physics or certain areas of physics and the sciences that I look at. Um, one is the um, f- greater fruitfulness of the perfectly controlled experiment. Mm -hmm. Um, So you need other kinds of experiments, randomized experiments in uh, the biomedical and social sciences, um, not controlled experiments because they they simply don't work. And you have a good theory. And um, I don't think I have a problem with a perfectly controlled experiment. Reasoning is just as eliminative as in the other cases. But I have not um, sort of included highly theoretical considerations in that kind of um, um, in that kind of framework mm-hmm. my hunch is that what theory does it is it eliminates alternatives up front against the backdrop of a theory certain kinds of things simply can't happen and so you know you the the eliminative process is is aided by that but I haven't I haven't developed that um, that view mm-hmm. um, the other difference, um, sorry, um, I, I mentioned that, um, sort of the, the, the other area you talked about was ordinary language. And I think here it's perfectly consistent, uh, sorry, uh, um, uh, continuous mm. with um, the areas I look at, history and the law. I just prefer to look at history and the law because, um, as I said, normative consideration standards play an important role. Mm. And in the law, for example, it's much clearer what these normative standards are. Um, in ordinary language, very often it's not clear. And so I think um, causal reasoning in everyday language is simply just not as sort of not as, as precise um, as, you know, in these areas of science and, um, and the law. It's, um, it's, it's, it's a lot more underdetermined, you know, what kinds of inferences are actually licensed and so on, because there's more of a plurality of standards, um, you know, very often purposes crisscross and so on. So it's, it's very difficult to say in ordinary language cases what the meaning of cause is. Good. Um, so let me just one final question. Where, uh, what are you working on now? Are you following up this particular book, some of the strands of, of inquiry that are suggested but not addressed here or are you moving absolutely to- i think um sort of the book 
puts out the view, but I still have a lot of work to do um, working out some extensions, but also defenses of the view. So um, especially the, the view on, on evidence, I have to defend against the standard accounts of evidence, in particular against Bayesianism, mm -hmm. um, against Akenstein, for example, against inference to the best explanation, which seems very very similar on, on the face of it, but I think it's very different. Um, and, um, you know, I, 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 I mean, I think there's a whole research project in there now that sort of the basics of of the view are sketched that you know that i can i can sort of sit down and and, and work on the details defending it you know against causal powers views and you know causal powers views i think occupy two pages or something in the book but of course a lot more can be said and causal power theorists have of course, a lot to say in defense of their theories. Right. And again, you know, I can, I can respond to that. So I think there's, um, there's a lot of work still to be done suggested by this book. Very good. Uh, well, I look forward to seeing some of that in the future. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Uh, well, yeah, thank you again for taking the time to, to talk with us. And uh, I wish you luck with your, your future work. Thanks very much. It was a pleasure talking to you. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to my interview with Julian Rees, who is Professor of Philosophy at Durham University and co-director of the Center for Humanities Engaging Science and Society. We've been talking about his new book, Causation, Evidence, and Inference, which is just out from Routledge. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.